I'm going to read as we pick up in verse 10. I'll read 10, 11, and 12. That'll give you a sense of where we are, and then we'll dive in together. Galatians 3, verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Let me read a couple more verses to you so it finishes the thought. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. My question for this morning is... Have you ever experienced an aha moment? Yes, maybe many, maybe many aha moments. It's that aha moment, that sudden insight, that inspiring clarity, that moment of discovery where you're struck by something significant and the light comes on. It's a light bulb moment. You go, ah, aha, from post-it notes to Play-Doh and potato chips. Our world has been changed by individuals who have had aha moments. Maybe you don't know this, but there's something called the Archimedes principle. While taking a bath, Archimedes discovered what we now call the Archimedes principle, a method of measuring the volume of irregular shapes with water displacement. He was so excited that he forgot to dress himself and took to the streets of Italy, exclaiming, Eureka, which is Greek for, I have found it. Ikea, how many of you love Ikea? Ikea was founded because Ingvar Kampard couldn't fit a table into his car, so he took the legs off. And his aha moment led to the founding of Ikea. Well, there are many others, as I said, post-its, potato chips, and penicillin, and so many other things that have come from aha moments, but they're spiritual aha moments. You know what I'm talking about. Psalm 73, the man who wrote that, his name is Asaph. In the middle of that Psalm, he has an aha moment. How many of you know Psalm 73? He's troubled. He's jealous of the wicked because he sees how they prosper and all of his religious stuff he does and all the things that he does for God doesn't seem to help him. And the wicked, they seem to be doing great. So he said, man, my foot almost slipped. I almost stumbled because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he had to work that out. And then he goes up to the sanctuary of God and he has this aha moment. He says, I went to the sanctuary and I understood their end. I understood that they'd only be prosperous for a time, but that would end and they would face judgment. So that was his aha moment. For me, big one of many aha moments in my life was studying the Old Testament book of Genesis, the life of Abraham. In a men's Bible study, reading through Genesis, I had started it, I don't know, 10 times, got to chapter five, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, said, I don't know what this book is about. I tried to read the Bible and it just did not make any sense. It was a mystery to me. I was a Christian, but at that Bible study, the light came on and I don't know how, nothing I did, But I can say that at that Bible study, all of a sudden I understood 
that in the Bible, God was speaking to me. He was speaking to me. And at that moment, everything in my life changed. Well, why do I mention aha moments? Why do I talk about such things? Because the passage we're reading includes a quote from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Some of you don't even know what a Habakkuk is, but you'll find out today. And it's the aha moment that led to the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther was the man who had the aha moment. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted three places in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 10, and right here in this passage in Galatians chapter 3. See, in 1510, just to place it, Martin Luther would have been nine years old when Columbus sailed, just to place it for you. So in 1510, Martin Luther, the monk, takes a pilgrimage to Rome to try to work out some things in his life. Travels 700 miles over the Alps on foot to Rome, looking so forward to seeing Rome, the capital of Catholicism and the capital of his faith. And when he got there, he was utterly disappointed with the corruption, the extravagance, and the veneration of holy relics, the sale of indulgences. You see, most people back then understood that their good did not outweigh their bad. And the Catholic Church had come up with a way, well, the way that this would be worked out is you would spend time in purgatory, being purged of all of your sins. So most Christians then looked forward to, after death, a time of misery while their sins were being purged. But you could shorten that time for yourself, or the indulgences were transferable. You could buy indulgences and shorten somebody else's time in purgatory. And the popes were getting rich off of other people's fear of misery. So this is what Martin Luther saw when he went to Rome. He was trying to buy his grandfather out of purgatory. And so like pilgrims still do today, in Rome, you have the 28 steps. I think they're called the Scala Sancta, the steps that are believed to have been in Jerusalem at one time, the steps that were connected to Pontius Pilate's judgment seat. 28 marble steps, and the practice was that you don't walk up. You're not allowed to walk up the steps. You have to crawl up the steps on your knees, and every step you have to recite the Lord's Prayer. And if you accomplish that, you can then buy someone else's time out of purgatory. And so Martin Luther did that. And as he got to the top of the steps, he thought to himself, how do I even know if this is true? And the Lord spoke to him there at the top of those steps, Habakkuk chapter two, not for the first time. Martin Luther had heard and was familiar with this verse. Habakkuk two says, for the just shall live by his faith. The righteous man shall live by his faith. And at that point, he got up and walked back down the steps, and it changed his life. The voice of God broke through. He had an aha moment as he participating in religion, and the Word of God was speaking to his mind. Philip Yancey, in his book, by the way, if you're looking for a really good book on grace, this is Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I've had this for years. I go back to it all the time. In this book, Philip Yancey quotes Richard Niebuhr, saying, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. Before I get into the passage, I'll say this to this group. I know, I know that I know that some of you are looking for that aha moment. You just know that you know that you're reading the word and you're coming to church and you know the sermons and you're just looking for the light to come on. 
and I'm praying for you. Prayed for you before I preached today, that for some of you, today's message might be that aha moment where you actually get grace. I mean, we talk about grace. We can define it. We understand what it means. Talk about the theology of grace. But how do you know when you're actually living it? You ever read the Bible and go, hey, that's not fair. You read the story of the prodigal son and you read about this kid who takes his parents' inheritance. He gets his trust fund and blows it on wine and women and he squanders it and he comes home and we want dad to break bad on him. Like, let him have it, dad. He was just wrong. He was out of line. You need to let him have it. And dad hugs him and honors him, restores him. There was a party for him. He's like, wait a second, that's not fair. The older brother says, wait a second, that's not fair. I mean, you're going to tell your relatives, like, I go to church and I found out that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. That God loves me right where I am. And they're going to say, well, wait a second, you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do this. And you're like, yeah, right, that's right, I don't. And God loves me right where I am. And they're going to go, well, that's not fair. I do this and I do that. And there's more than that. There's the workers. One guy gets hired at 8 a.m. The other guy gets hired at 4 p.m. And at the end of the day, it's pay time and everybody gets the same thing. And you go, wait a second, that's not fair. How can they get the same thing? That's not fair. He didn't earn it. That's not fair. It's hard for our brain to conceptualize that grace is not fair. It costs Christ everything and it costs me nothing. And that's not fair. So the question for us is, how do you know that you're parenting by grace? How do you know that you're doing marriage by grace? How do you know that you're doing church by grace and not by law? I don't have a simple answer for that, but maybe you stop saying that's not fair. But I hope that the light will come on for you because that light, that switch makes all the difference in the world. When you move from law to grace, your life changes. So back to Galatians chapter three, Paul has been ministering to this church. They are being tempted to be brought back under law. Paul says you're being bewitched. You're turning from Christ. You're accepting a false gospel, a gospel of works instead of grace. And in verse 10, he says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, and there's our quote, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So there's law and there's faith. And those two things are not, they can't be combined or interwoven or mutually joined. They are mutually exclusive. It's either or. So Paul had just been saying to them, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under a curse? And in fact, he's saying that it's actually them that's under a curse. Did you catch that? They're under a curse. The law, those who are of the works of the law. Now, when you say the word of, what you're speaking of is a point of origin where things start and proceed from. So there are those 
whose starting point is rules. That's where things start. And if that's where you're going to start by what are the rules and how do I keep them, then you are going to find yourself under the curse. So he says, you know, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So the law is always connected to my performance. These are things I'm obliged to do to somehow obtain God's blessing. Now you're going to get bored of us talking about law and grace. I mean, when we get into chapter five and chapter six, we're going to talk about the practicality of life in the spirit. So hang in there. But it's such a pervasive issue in life, this idea of the way to parent is more rules. The way to rule the world is more rules. Now look again, the law is for the ungodly. We are thankful for civil law, are we not? Yes, we are, because it restrains and constrains the behavior of those who do not know God. And we're glad it does that. But we've come to find out that rules don't necessarily fix behavior. They restrain it for a time for those that are willing to be restrained. And our prisons are filling to overfull. And we're talking about spiritual law, moral law. And so the law is about performance of what's expected. And we like that because I like to say, I did it. There's something about my flesh that likes to look at you and say, I've done better than you. I achieved it and you did. It was hard to be saved. It was hard, but I did it. And we like to puff ourselves up about that. But Paul actually says, uh, I wouldn't go there if I was you, because actually, if you're trying to live by law, it's not just about knowing what's right. It's not about having a Bible study where you teach other people what's right. It's not about approving what's right when you watch the election debates and getting mad at what's wrong. When it boils down, Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. So the law is all or nothing. It's not pick and choose. If you're going to keep the law, and I've met people who say, well, I, I keep the law. Do you really? We'll come back to that. It's either, either you keep the whole thing or you break the whole thing. It's all or nothing. And they says, continue in all things which are written in the book of law to do them. Doesn't matter what you approve. Doesn't matter what you teach. Doesn't matter what you say. The question is, do you do it? The curse is another way to say it is a malediction, a phrase uttered to bring about destruction or evil. The opposite is a benediction. How many of you have heard the word in church, benediction? Some of you know my story. First couple of years as a pastor, I get a phone call from someone in the community that says, hey, Pastor Steve, you're the new guy on the block. We want you to come to our function and pronounce the benediction. And I said, what time? I'll be there. Got the appointment written down in my book, hung up the phone and said, Helga, What's a benediction? Because I got to do one and I don't know what it is. But a benediction is when we pronounce a blessing. It's to speak a blessing or something good to somebody. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. That's a blessing. The opposite of that is a curse, a malediction. So what curse is everyone under? who doesn't continue in all the things to do them. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. And it's referring to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the priests and the heads of Israel pronounced the curses and the blessings. From one mountain, they pronounced the blessings of God. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do that, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you keep the law, you'll be blessed. But if you do this, you'll be cursed. If you break my law, if you do this immoral thing, if you do that immoral thing, then you'll be cursed. 
So what we find is that when you set out to go, I'm going to keep the law, you find out that it's condemning to you because you find out that you've broken it. The very things that you weren't supposed to do, like Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, have you been there? Have you come to that? Do you ever get frustrated with yourself? I did it again. New Year's came and went. I made a New Year's resolution. I'm not going to do that again. And I did it again. And I'm, oh, I'm frustrated with me. And I'm ashamed of me. So you realize I'm under a curse. See, we're all under the curse because we're all in Adam. We've all come from original sin and we've all inherited that from Adam. So Jesus doesn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. We're already condemned. He came to save. Let's look at this a different way. So are you feeling gracious this morning? So I have somewhat of a lengthy illustration and illustrations can be iffy. You know, it's like my Elmo parade illustration from a few weeks ago. I'm not sure how this is going to work, but we're going to run with it, okay? So are you feeling gracious? You can email me later and tell me if it spoke to you or not. So some people look at the law like a spiritual health regimen. But what if we looked at the law instead like a set of symptoms for diagnostic purposes? You see, everybody's watching the news as we look at the world and the coronavirus. This thing is going to be a pandemic. They cannot stop it. It's spreading too fast. It's in Italy. It's in Iran. It's in Canada. It's in the U.S. Basically, they can't stop it. You don't have symptoms, but you have the sickness, and so you can spread it without even knowing you have it, and this thing is just going to continue to spread. So how do you keep yourself safe? Well, hand-washing and good hygiene. What are the symptoms? Runny nose, sore throat, cough, fever, shortness of breath, and again, those can get worse. There's a scale of symptoms. So you show symptoms, and you go to the doctor, and you have it, and now what? Now you need a cure. Once you have it, you don't leave the doctor and go, well, I'll start washing my hands now. It's too late. You can enter into a whole regimen of good hygiene. And the last time I was sick, I'm like turmeric. I'm taking emergency and vitamins and everything. But ultimately, I was already sick. You can try to keep yourself from getting sick. But once you're already sick, you're in trouble. Are you with me so far? So let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor's, okay, you're sick, but let's do this. I'm going to give you some commandments that you can keep. Thou shalt not sneeze. Thou shalt not have a body temperature exceeding 99 degrees. Thou shalt not cough. Thou shalt have no soreness of throat, including no redness or tenderness. Thou shalt have no drainage from thy nose. Thou shalt wash thy hands thoroughly and regularly. And if you do that, you'll be okay. The problem is you're already sick You can't do it because it's happening on the inside. So the symptoms are being produced from the inside and they're coming out. So let's transfer this to the spiritual. You go into the doctor's office and the doctor's, okay, sit in the chair, fill out the paperwork and you got to do the history, the medical history. You know, check all that apply. Have you ever experienced in the last five years any of these symptoms? Have you ever had a fickle heart that gravitates away from God? Check. Have you ever found that a job, hobby, recreation, or ambition has become the prime passion of your life? Check. You ever say, I love God, but instead I live for myself? Check. Do you regularly set aside a day that all I do is focus on God? Yeah, no, I haven't done that in a while. You ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Check. 
You ever wanted something that didn't belong to you, including someone else's spouse or life or looks or personality or car or house or job? Check. So you hand over the paperwork and you sit. Doctor comes in or you get called into the office and the doctor's got your chart and he's going, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Ah, well, Steve, I see you have a malady, a malediction. You're cursed with the Adam virus. All the symptoms are clear. I've seen hundreds and thousands of cases of this and you are sick. Wow, that's a curse. I'm sick. Sin is the original pandemic and the mortality rate is 100% fatality. Imagine if coronavirus had 100% fatality. You can see how the book of Revelation, how something could take out a third or two thirds the world's population very easily. But we have this thing, this sickness called sin. And once you have it, once you recognize you have it, see, we all have it, but some of us don't recognize the symptoms. So we think I'm healthy. But then when you start to see the symptoms, you go, wait a second, maybe something is wrong to me. And the something that I have wrong with me, adhering to external codes and regulations like hand washing doesn't do it, doesn't fix it. You know, Helga, (laughs) every year she gets a cough. Anybody have something like that? Every year she gets a cough and it's always like two big coughs and a little cough. And we joke about it and she keeps these cough drops by our bed and neither of us get any sleep for a couple of weeks. And it usually lasts about a month. And she feels terrible when she gets the cough. And I say, well, just stop coughing. Knock it off. I'm trying to sleep now. It's annoying. You know what I'm talking about. And she tries to hide it and suppress it, but it's still there. See, legalism says, I can suppress the symptoms and make you think I'm not sick. But all you're really doing All legalism does is try to control or hide the symptoms. Imagine church like this. You come into church, you know you're sick, you know you have a fever, but don't touch me because you'll find out that I have a fever. I got a hot temper. And I'm trying to hold in my sneeze or cough, wiping my nose so no one sees. You got cotton shoved up your nose so no one will see your nose running. And you try to come in. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm doing okay. You're sitting there going, you got to sneeze and you're like, because I can't let anybody see me sneeze because then they'll know that I'm sick. And then we're in church and everybody's looking healthy and hiding the symptoms. And then all of a sudden someone goes, achoo, who was that? And then after church, someone comes up to me and says, pastor, I think there was a sick person here today. I mean, I heard a sneeze. I don't want to gossip or anything, but I'm sure it's because they didn't wash their hands. And if they had taken off their hospital gown, you know, there's people come in here and they got the hospital gown. They know they're sick. They know they're hurting spiritually. And the shame is just hanging out, the throwing up on everybody coming in and is, I'm sick. I need God. I need something. I need help. And the hospital gown, you know how shameful a hospital gown is, right? And those little socks, what's with those little socks? Like I get out of bed, I got wires coming out of me everywhere. And I almost slipped, but the little treads in the bottom of the sock saved my life. I didn't fall. It's just a mess. And then someone comes in like that. If you would just put on scrubs instead of the hospital gown, you'd be better. Like scrubs, what I wear is not going to fix me. Do you see the application? 
Someone comes in and they're bleeding and they're hurting and they're sick and they're throwing up and they're sneezing and coughing. And you go, wow, you're sick, man. You just need to get some new clothes. But we do that. Like we think, you've come to church. If you just wear a suit and cut your hair, get rid of those tattoos, you'll be okay. Stop eating this and start eating that. And it's like, what are we thinking? What do we think is going on here? That somehow we can pretend we're not sick. See, for some, law becomes the way they think they're going to live. They become little lawyers. Some of you know there's 10 commandments, right? But then there's 613 commandments in the Torah, things that the Jews are supposed to do and not do. But the 10 commandments, well, they're too vague. This is a matter of life and death. I need to know what I got to do. So when God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, they go, what does that mean? Like, there's no detail there. So they have what's called the Mishnah, And the Gemara, these are the Talmud for the Jew. It's called the oral law. And to them, it's more important than the Bible. It's more important than the Bible. How do you know you're still a legalist if you got a book that's more important than the Bible in terms of how to live? So it's 2,711 pages front and back, 2 million words describing how you should keep the law. If you read a page a day, it'd take you seven years. So we say, well, you should tithe. Well, is it on my gross or on my net? You see how then you start to think, if I want to be right with God, I got to know exactly what this looks like. And so we become little lawyers and we go to Israel and we ride in the Sabbath, the Shabbat elevator, because on the Sabbath day, you're not allowed to kindle a fire. Well, what does that mean? I mean, when I press that elevator button, there's a little filament in there that lights up red hot. That's sort of a fire, so I can't push the button because that's kindling a fire. 2,711 pages front and back, they have to memorize so that they can know that they know that they know that they're keeping the law because for them, it's life. And we've done one verse so far. But that no one is justified by the law on the sight of God is evident. I mean, it's clear, it's obvious. No one can be justified by the law in the sight of God, because the just shall live by faith. And that's where he quotes Habakkuk. He doesn't say just from experience, experience alone would tell us, but he says it's actually what the Bible says. Where? One of the most famous Old Testament passages, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous person lives by his faith. If you go to Habakkuk, don't go there, I'll tell you about it. Wonderful book, only three chapters. You can read it in about 10 minutes. He says, behold the proud... His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk has a problem. And it's a problem very similar to our day. He looks around at his nation and he says, man, there's all this corruption, all these problems. People are hurting each other. No one seems to be caring about each other. People don't care about you, God, and you're not doing anything about it. What's your problem? You ought to get with the program, step in and do something. And God says, oh, you watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, a nasty Gentile nation, and they're going to come and pronounce judgment on my people. And Habakkuk says, wait a second, that's not what I was expecting. I mean, how can you use the Gentile, the Babylonians, to pronounce judgment on your own people? They're way worse. So Habakkuk sort of has it out with God, and God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of the proud. The Babylonians are going to receive judgment for their pride. And they're trusting in their enemy and their armies and their power and their gods. I'm going to pronounce judgment on that. The proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the opposite of that, the just, the righteous person shall live by his faith. 
And then in Habakkuk chapter three, we see Habakkuk actually talk about his faith. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Habakkuk knew that although right now things look pretty bleak, that he was going to continue to trust God and what God was doing, and he was going to continue in that path. And it changed his emotional state, didn't it? I mean, things were really bleak, but he said, you know what? I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I can't rejoice in much else right now, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. So the righteous person, what Martin Luther discovered, what we are trying to discover is the righteous person is animated. That's the word live is the zoe life where we get zoology, the animating principle of life. When you watch animals in their habitat, when you watch them live, the just person, the person who is right with God lives not by law, not by rules, but by trust, by a trusting relationship with God. Listen, what kept Noah alive during the flood? His faith. The fact that he trusted God. What kept Rahab alive when Jericho was conquered? She put the scarlet cord out. What kept the Jews alive when the Passover was happening, when the death angel passed over? God said, I want you to be under the blood. I want you to put blood over your door. They said, that doesn't make any sense. But okay, if you said so, we'll do it. We trust you. So faith does involve actions, activity, works that come from faith but not mindless rule keeping. So there's two options in life. Listen carefully. There's Jesus and grace or works and law. To reject Jesus is to reject grace. God in his grace gave us his son. That was his answer for us. I love you. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be whole. And the answer to that is not rules. The answer to that is my son. To reject grace is to say, when I stand before the holy God on the day of judgment, I want to get what I have earned by my behavior. I think I have sufficiently controlled my symptoms so as not to appear sick most of the time, and that should be good enough for God. Proud and self-reliant people will meet eventual judgment, even if they live prosperously for a time. But those that place their trust in God, like Job, who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. They will live eternally. John Piper said, the just shall live by faith means just people are people of faith. And faith is what secures their life and keeps them safe for eternity. I mean, imagine how church could be. We have found the cure, so we aren't going to die anymore. So we celebrate that. God has given us his son. So a person that says, I'm a good person, is saying, I reject what God is giving me. I reject grace. There's not a bunch of ways there's one way. It's Jesus. And to reject him is to say, I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to make my own way. In whatever subtle or little way you reject Jesus, you reject God's grace. And you say, I'm going to stand on my own. So for church, how does this apply? We've got the cure. And we've realized we're not going to die anymore. And so that's why we celebrate. Our symptoms, well, they're getting a little better. I still have a lingering cough, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And when someone comes in coughing and sneezing and throwing up everywhere, we say, oh, so you're sick, are you? 
You finally realized it. Well, you've come to the right place. I know how it feels to be sick. I can't make you better, but I know Jesus can. In the meantime, here's a tissue and some chicken soup. Come on in. One woman, Irma Bombeck, wrote this. This is from Philip Yancey's book. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around, smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, stop that grinning, you're in church. With that, she gave him a belt and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, she added, that's better. And she returned to her prayers. Suddenly, Irma says, I was angry. It occurred to me the entire world is in tears. And if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God the smiling God, the God who had to have a sense of humor and have created the likes of us. By tradition, one wears faith with the solemnity of a mourner, the gravity of a mask of tragedy, and the dedication of a rotary badge. What a fool, I thought. Here was a woman sitting next to the only light left in our civilization, the only hope, our only miracle, our only promise of infinity. If he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23. He became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham by faith might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the key. He goes back to the promise of the Spirit We get not by works of the law, not by doing the right things, but by receiving it as a gift from God. Christ has redeemed us. How many of you know what agoraphobia is? Agoraphobia is the fear of crowds, the fear of crowded places. Agora is the ancient word for the marketplace, the shopping mall. So people that have agoraphobia are afraid of the marketplace, being out in public. In crowds, they get anxious. Christ has redeemed, it's the word exagorazo, means out of the marketplace. And in that culture, the marketplace was where the slave market was. You bought your slaves there. So to be redeemed from the curse of the law, it's like the curse owns me as its slave. And Christ comes along and he buys me out of that, pays for me with the blood of his own life to redeem me. And basically the way it worked is then you'd be under that new master's domain until you could buy your way out of that slavery, which again for us never happens. We just get transferred from one owner to another, but Christ has redeemed us from a curse so we could experience blessing. I can't tell you how many people I meet that are afraid to be and act and experience the blessing of God. They're so busy worrying about how God is trying to get them that they're going to bring it down a curse upon them. Can I read this to you again? Christ, not legalism, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, trying to keep all the rules. Having become a curse for us, written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ hung on a tree. When a person broke the law, they would be stoned to death. But then if you wanted to make a public example of them, you'd put the body on a tree for everyone else to see 
as a deterrent, as an example. And then you'd have to take that body down so that it could be buried before the sun went down. So that's what Paul is saying, that when Christ was on the cross, people said, oh, there's a man cursed by God. And they were right. The problem is, is they thought he was cursed because of something he did. But he was cursed because of something I did. And that act redeemed me forever from the curse that the law has pronounced on me so that I could receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. I'm just going to roll through the last few verses. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. He's speaking of a last will and testament. Once you sign your will and you die, it is binding. Much to your kid's chagrin. Much to many of your relatives' chagrin. Once that thing is pronounced, once it's done, the lawyer reads it, and there it is. You can't change it. They say, wait a second, that's not fair. Tough. Can't be changed. Can't be altered. And if that's true of a man's covenant, he says, how much more of a promise that God makes? Now to Abraham and his seed, not his descendants, it's singular, to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. He's going back to Genesis, back to the promise of Abraham that God would bless him and his seed. New King James translates descendants, but the Hebrew is seed, singular. And that's what Paul's making a big deal out of here. The blessing is speaking of Abraham and Christ. And that in Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Verse 17, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. When that last will and testament is read, whatever's said there, whatever you get, you get. You don't have to earn it. You can't say, well, if I work harder, can I get some more stuff from my parents? from mom or from dad, at that point, whatever's been gifted to you has been gifted to you. And Paul says that God promised Abraham a blessing and that promise extended through to Christ, his seed, and to all who are connected to God through that seed, through Christ. Now that transfers. If you got to wear a suit or some kind of clothing to be righteous, try preaching that to the people that live in sub-Saharan Africa. See, the things that it takes to be saved have to transfer across cultures, across ethnicities. So you got to think about, what is it that I really think needs to happen for a person to be saved? And can that transfer to the steppe of Mongolia, the tundra of Siberia, the mountains of Peru, or the Shenandoah Valley? And guess what? Faith fits the bill. Oh, that God would open your eyes, not just to see it, but to then transfer that to the way you live with other people. 